0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. The first verse of John's Gospel reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Typically, Christians understand the Word, often with a capital W, to refer to the Son, and the first God here to refer to the Father, whereas the second one refers to God's essence or substance. And so they read this verse In the beginning was the Son, and the Son was with the Father, and the Son was God. I'm not at all convinced that that is the best reading of John 1:1, and as John Shaneheit explains, this typical reading owes more to later Trinitarian ideology than the native biblical context. Instead of assuming the word just is the Son, Shaneheit carefully shows how God's Word is his plan for salvation. In fact, this is what became incarnate in Jesus down in verse 14. If you'd like to follow along with the slideshow for this presentation, visit restitutio.org and search for Podcast 111. Recorded at the 2017 Kingdom Fest, here is Podcast 111, John 1-1 Explained, with John Schainheit.
1: Thank you, guys, for having me here. It's really an honor and a blessing and a privilege, and I greatly appreciate it. And we're going to take a look this morning at one of the more difficult verses in the scripture and actually in one of the more difficult sections of the scripture, which is John 1.1 1, 1 and the prologue of John. And I'm going to say in advance that some of the stuff we're going to do this morning is a little technical. But, you know, we've, we've got to be able to understand the technical or else then we, we can't teach the simplicity. Does that make sense? Once you understand the technical and you're confident about it, then, then you can just teach with great simplicity. So we're in, first, we're in John 1.1, 1, 1, and in the bottom is your King James Version. This is what most of you are used to reading, whether you read the King James or the NIV or for most translations. Um, in my experience, a lot of people just, they kind of ask me, they say, John, why can't you just take the Greek or the Hebrew and bring it into English? And the reason for that is a lot of time. first of all, there's a whole lot of words that mean more than one thing. And there's a whole lot of phrases that mean more than one thing. And anytime you run into that, then you've got to make a choice. And one of the things that God does actually, and we'll actually run into one of those later on in the teaching, is God will use a word that means both things. And unfortunately, the English translators have to scratch and Which one do we choose? And I'm, <laughs> I'm in these debates on a daily basis. You know, which, which one of these words do we choose when God specifically picked the word so you could see both meanings? And, then, and that becomes really, really valuable to know. So, for example, you're used to the bottom in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. But that's not the only way that that can be translated. In fact, if you read the Greek grammars, and later on we'll have a slide from uh, Wallace's book, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics, and they will support the fact that this isn't even the best translation of the Greek. And so you'll see at the top, um, what you see at the top is our translation, Uh, We at Spirit and Truth have been working on a translation of the Bible for 17 years. It's available online. It started because in 2000, and I had avoided doing a translation of the Bible for years because I thought, gosh, if they call us a cult when we don't have our own Bible, if we have our own Bible, we're doomed. (laughs) And and that worked until in 2000 we started doing teen camps, uh, camps for teenagers where we taught them the Bible. if you guys know teenagers, they don't they hardly read anyway. <laughs> and so I would say, you guys have got to read this book. You've got to read this book and you've got to believe it. And then I would say, uh, but not this, because it really means this. But well, well, this doesn't well, this word really doesn't mean that. It means this. And somebody came up beside me and said, Shane, you got more Bible in the margin of your Bible than you got Bible. <laughs> and and I realized. I needed something that I could hand to a teenager and say, read this and believe it. Because that's what God wanted. If you could read the Hebrew and read the Greek, God would say, read it and believe it because I'm serious. And and that's the way God is with his word. And he only authored one book. I mean, (laughs) we watch hours and hours. I always get a kick out of talking to some of these guys that, you know, they're kind of bleary out on Monday morning. What would you do on Sunday? Watch three football games. You watched football for nine hours. How much Bible did you read this week? Ten minutes? <laughs> I was like, ooh, you could have taken some halftimes there. You know, worked, in, worked in some Bible. But So the REV Translation Revised English Version, that is our trademarked version that we've been working on for 17 years. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And what God was, the Word was. God's love, God's pure, God's righteous, what God was, the word was. And as we go through the slides, we'll defend this. So let's move on. What is God doing in John 1? Uh, you know, you read John 1 and you're like, what? What? <laughs> What are you up to? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, what God was, the Word was the same, was in the beginning with God, all things were made through it, and without it was not anything made that has been made, and it was life, and the life was the light of mankind, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. A man came sent from John, it goes on, you're like, what is this? Well, it's very clear, and all the scholars realize, That when John 1 starts out in the beginning what is every Jew and Greek who has any kind of biblical understanding or background at all thinking immediately Genesis 1 and so you have the same basic contest in John 1 or John as you do in Genesis in Genesis in the beginning the creation You know, uh, last night was such a great presentation, you know, that God spoke and he created everything in the span of your hand. In the beginning, the creation. And then there's chaos and there's darkness. And then God has to overcome that. He hovers over the water and then he speaks light. And the light overcomes the darkness. And then he prepares the Garden of Eden. And one of the, again, one of the problems with translating... People hear Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden, Garden of what? What's so important about that? If you're reading the Hebrew, the word Eden means delight. It was a garden of delight. God, he's like, I'm going to create man. Well, earth, meh. It's okay, but, you know, but I want a garden of delight for my man and my woman. And so God makes a garden of delight. Well, the Greeks get this, and they're like, how do we translate this into Greek? The ancient Greeks didn't have gardens like we know them today, but the Persians now they had royal pleasure gardens, and those royal pleasure gardens, the, the Persian word for the royal pleasure gardens was paradise and so the Greeks borrowed that word and translated and brought in paradisos and if you read the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Garden of Eden is paradisos and we shoot ourselves in the foot because the old testament is hebrew and the new testament is greek if christ was speaking hebrew on the cross to the thief he would have said you will be with me in eden see and if the if and if the thief had been reading greek and jesus christ spoke greek which he did then he would have said you will be with me in paradisos and the, the thief on the cross would have said, wow, paradise restored. And, and he would have gotten that. But we got Garden of Eden in the Old Testament, paradise in the New Testament. We don't see the, the connection between them. But God makes this paradise. And, and then, oops, there's the fall. And so now the, the world is ruined. And, and God's got to fix things. And so Genesis 1 is about the creation. John 1 is about the restoration. So you have, in the beginning was the Logos, God's plan. We'll get into that. And we'll talk about how Logos gets to be planned. Then all things are made in accordance with the plan. That makes good sense. And then the plan was light. And in the plan was life. And the darkness, um, and here in the versions, yeah, the darkness did not overcome it. Um, I think the King James reads, the darkness did not comprehend it, right? Um, Here's a Greek word that means to understand and to overcome. What do you do with that? i got to bring this into English. Is it the darkness did not understand the light? Or the darkness did not overcome the light? It's both. and so the translators have to pick one or the other some pick more like understand like the King James some pick overcome like the REV because of the conflict every once in a while I throw up my hands and just conflate the text and I'll say I'll, what I'll do is I'll do italics I'll say understand and I'll put overcome in italics understand or overcome and that way people know that's added to the text just like the King James and then we can read and understand So here's this this fight between the light and the darkness, because when Jesus Christ came into the world, did he fight with darkness? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. (laughs) Do I? Yeah. Absolutely. We're all fighting. And then the plan became flesh and lived in a tent among us, and we gazed at its glory. That's absolutely fabulous, because... Here's God, Genesis 1, he creates everything, and you know it was very good, he puts Adam and Eve in the garden of of delight, there's a fall, now the best God can do in this fallen world, okay, I'm going to go live in a tent, so he has the the people of Israel build a tent, later on became a a temple, we call that tent the Tabernacle. tabernacle, right. And you know, when, when you read about the tabernacle, it was surrounded by curtains that were five cubits high. Well, a cubit's a, a foot and a half. Some say it was a real cubit, two feet. So it was between seven and a half and 10 feet high. Uh, we've done a lot of excavating of graves of ancient Israelites. How tall were they? Five-ish feet. You know, you walk up to a seven and a half foot wall, and if you're five feet, guess what? You can't see over it. So what they could see was a pillar of fire and a pillar of, of, of smoke. And every night, you know, they'd be watching the smoke. They'd, like my, my wife was when I married her, she lived in Florida. She lived 10 minutes from the West Coast Beach. And the big deal was to go to the West Coast Beach and see the sunset. And you could go there and, I mean, the, it's like you're kidding. What's going to happen? There's chairs and chairs. It's like, a, a, you know, like a, a game or something. And it's all these people that go down with their glass of wine and sit on the beach to watch the sunset. And, you know, you could just see the Israelites. What time is it? You know, it's, it's getting close to sunset. This is going to be really cool. And they go and they set their chairs out. And they can't see over the tent to what all the priests are doing over the walls. But they can see that pull over fire and pillow smoke. And I go. Okay, it's about to happen, it's about to happen. And then the sun was setting and all of a sudden you got that pillar of fire. And then, and then the next morning your sun's starting to get up, you know, if you had a bad, bad night's sleep or something, get out there and you gaze at it, you know, you gaze at it. And then it back into a pillar of smoke. And they, just, they would just watch that. And so, the, so here we have the Logos, the plan of God. But what do we know about the plan of God? It became flesh. Before it was flesh, it was just a plan. Jesus Christ existed in the mind of God. You know, in the Gospels, I don't know if you remember where it says, the beginning of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think it's the Gospel of Mark. Well, the Greek word genesis means origin. His origin. And some of the scribes didn't like that, and they changed it to genesis spelled differently, which means birth. Because though the birth we could understand, but the origin? But yeah, the origin of Jesus Christ. Before that, he was just God's plan. Now, so he came, and and, and God specifically used, you know, some of the versions, he came and dwelt among us. It misses the point. Like God came and lived in a tent. Jesus Christ came and lived in a tent. You know, the human body is called the tent. You guys know that in the New Testament, right? So he came and he lived in a tent. Why did God use that specific word there? Because this is paralleling what happened in the Old Testament, how God had to come to His people, and now He's coming to His people again to restore them. And that's what Jesus did. He came to restore us to God, and He came and lived in a tent. And what do we do? We're looking at this perfect man who's totally sinless, who's walking with God. Every footstep, every word out of his mouth is what God would like him to speak. And we're just gazing at him. Wow. Can anybody actually do that? Wow. Wow. And, and so our admiration comes, and, and he's our savior. This is, this is this great man. And that's what the prologue of John is doing. That's written. why it's written the way it is. So we look at the word word, because really Christianity doesn't have a really good concept of what the word means. And logos in Greek could go in two different directions. One, it could go in the, the direction of logic or reason, and then related ideas, plans, purpose, especially in action, a design. One of the commentators suggested design. Or it could go in the direction of word, what comes out of your mouth. Uh, word, saying, message, instruction. Uh, if you've ever read Romans 12, um, Romans 12, 2 in different versions, you have versions like the King James that say, that, um, that serving God, being a living sacrifice, is your reasonable service. And then you read a version like the NIV and it says the, that serving God is your spiritual service. And I'm like, why? huh, why can't, what, what's going on here? And, and the, the Greek word is logikos, and because logos can go as word, it's, and, and, and reason, then it's your reasonable service, but also because it can go in terms of the, the spoken word of God, it's a spiritual service. And so it depends on, did the translator say, which way did Logos go here? And, and then they have to make a choice, and that's where the, that's why there's a division there. So in our English Bibles, and this was pretty simple, all I did is I took a Greek concordance and looked up the word Logos and see saw how it was used in a couple different translations. Um, occurs over 300 times account, appearance, book, command, conversation, eloquence, flattery, grievance, heard, instruction, matter message ministry, news, proposal question, reason, reasonable, reply, report rule, rumor said saying, etc. <laughs> and people go, really? <laughs> how, do you, how do you choose a meaning? And that's what translators argue over. <laughs> We just, I just spent uh, seven months with Jerry Werewolf and Dr. Dustin Smith translating Proverbs, and we had some very interesting arguments about how to bring a certain Hebrew word into English. It was really interesting. By the way, on the bottom, Jesus Christ is not a lexical definition of logos. And yet I've read versions that say in the beginning was Jesus. You know, that's not only a stretch, it's an unfair stretch. It's simply not what the text is saying. So the Logos in John 1.1 refers to his plan, his creative self-expression, his reason, his purposes, especially as they are brought into action. And that's why I think a translation like in the beginning was the Logos, the plan. If you think about it as the plan of God, the reason of God, the design of God, then we're in the ballpark. That's that's the Logos. Um, And so I grabbed some scholars. Uh, just so that you would know that I didn't make this stuff Andrews Norton postulates, perhaps, the disposing power of God because, again, that logos is the reason, but it's integrally tied to action. So he's going to go disposing power of God. Anthony Buzzard, plan, purpose, promise, as three acceptable translations. Uh, Broughton and Southgate, uh, Southgate, Logos was used to describe the thoughts and plan of God being put into action. And that's a good, a good definition. And then John Lightfoot, one of the premier uh, translators and Hebrew scholars of the last generation or two. Um, and the reason I think it's important here to quote, uh, quote Lightfoot is because uh, the other three, Norton, Buzzard, Broughton, and Southgate, are not, they're not Trinitarians. They understand Greek, but they're not Trinitarians. But Lightfoot is a Trinitarian. And he writes, as his reason, it, the logos, denoted his purpose or design as his speech, it implied his revelation. So I think Lightfoot is right. Uh, Reason, um, purpose, design, that's your logos. Now, here's the problem. The problem is if you're a Trinitarian commentator, you, you have to see you're actually forced by the text to see that the Logos somehow or other is Jesus Christ. And that's because it says without it, all things that were made were made. And so they have to work Jesus Christ in there. And so here's, here's what happens because the word Logos existed in the Greek world. In fact, I think one of the mistakes I used to make was when I would do word studies, that I would study how a word was used in the Bible itself, but not go outside of that. And that's a real genuine mistake that will lead you into serious trouble. Think about a big, a big American book, for example. What if you tried to define the usage of English words by Moby Dick? So you've got this one book, Moby Dick, and that's what you're going to use. Well, you're going to get a a very truncated and distorted use of the words of a language. How do we know what a word means in a language? We listen to how it's used. How do you know what a word in the Bible means? You find that word in the documents of the people of the time, and you see how they used that word. And so that's... um, that becomes really important because let's say okay I believe that the first of the seven church epistles that was written was Galatians and that's why Paul lays out all his credentials and I, I didn't get this I didn't make this up I didn't get this from man he lays out all his credentials in Galatians so here you are you're in Galatia you receive Paul's letter to the Galatians and you're really excited about it and then you say you know but it's really 48 AD and um, We're not going to really be able to read this for about 50 more years. Really, why? Well, because until we have the rest of the New Testament, we won't know what these words mean. Well, that's not right, no. They spoke the language. It was written in their language. They got the letter, they read it. And and if we understand the words in the the language, in the corpus of Greek literature across the New Testament world, then we can read the New Testament and we can see what the usage of those words were. Logos was a common word. You saw many different ways it was translated. Just the the New Testament itself, it occurs over 300 times. That kicks it pretty much right to the top of the list of of the words that are used a lot. You know, there's prepositions and stuff that are used more. So Logos was a very common word, and people knew what it meant. And so, and and, and I tell you, if you're talking to an unbelieving Greek or an unbelieving Jew, um, Logos means Jesus Christ. Huh? What? Where did you get... And remember, we'll read this in a second, but, you know, John 20... Well, we read it down at the bottom here. John 20, 31. Here's my REV translation. But these, these things in John are written so that you may believe so john's writing to believers or unbelievers the the gospel of john was originally convinced written to convince people that jesus was the christ it was written so unbelievers would read it and believe So they don't have a Christian concept of of what the Logos is. They've got a Greek or Jewish concept of what the Logos is. And he said, I wrote this so you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that believing you will have life in his name. So they're going to read Logos and and just read it in terms of their cultural context. It's the plan, it's the wisdom of God, it's the design of God. But the Christians go... (laughs) But it's got to be Jesus Christ, so they're going to work that in. Well, how do they do that? Well, on the on the left-hand side, we read what uh, Ed Clink from the exegetical commentary writes. He says, uh, "Certainly, the term logos might be recognizable to John's audience, but in direct connection to Je- but its direct connection to Jesus assumes it's Jesus, not merely John's religious philosophical context that de- determines its meaning." John is not relying on a background, but on a foreground. Meaning that, well, see, now we know who Jesus is, and we know what he did, therefore, John's relying on that. Well, the problem with that logic is it's not going to convince an unbelieving Jew. Let me see. You say the Logos means Jesus, and Jesus did this over here, so now it means Logos and John. I don't buy that. That's a circular argument. (laughs) That's as simple as it's going to be. John's got to come to them... He's, he's got to come to an unbeliever with a cogent, believable, convincing argument, just like we do. I mean, I, you guys are probably out on the street witnessing. I'm on the street witnessing. I'm talking to the person to, next to me on the plane on the way over here. You know, I mean, we're constantly. It's it's got. And you you know, if you say something unbelievable, guess what they do? They don't believe it. <laughs> it's as simple as it is. You got to say something people are going to believe. So here comes John, and he says, look god had a plan world's in a mess we know the world's in a mess but god had a plan and that plan god understood and he's going to bring that plan into the flesh and then that flesh and blood man is going to make things right and that's a very believable argument okay so that's where he goes so he's not relying on foreground he's relying on background absolutely um so here's John Lightfoot again. And I, this, this quote was so powerful because it's so true. I just wanted to make sure that, that we read it together because it really is what happened in Christian history. The word logos then, denoting both reason and speech, was a philosophical term adopted by the Alexandrian, uh, Alexandrian Judaism, Alexandria, Egypt, so these are the Jews in Egypt, Before St. Paul wrote to express the manifestation of the unseen God in the creation and government of the world. It included all modes by which God made himself known to men. As his reason, it denoted his purpose or design. As his speech, it implied his revelation. And Christian teachers, when they adopted this term, Lagos, exalted and fixed its meaning by attaching to it Two precise and definite ideas. The word is a divine person. The word became incarnate in Jesus Christ. It's obvious that these two propositions must have altered materially the significance of all the subordinate terms connected with the idea of the logos. What happened in Christian history? They simply changed the meaning of the term. And that happened a lot, by the way. When I studied, um, I, I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, took uh, church history, number of courses on church history, a couple courses on church history. I shouldn't exaggerate too much. <laughs> a few courses on church history. And one of the things that just constantly amazed me was how Christians redefine the Greek words to fit their Christian context. And they did. And, and Logos was one of those. And, it's, and that's why, you know, you, you go to your average Greek lexicon, say, written by a Bible believer. And, they, and you look up Logos and you don't see plan and purpose and design. And you're like, well, what's in here is Jesus Christ. Well, yes, that's exactly right. That's how they redefined it. And that's how the, the later church fathers used it. And so that's what shows up in the Greek lexicon. The question is, is that what the Greeks and the unbelieving Greeks and unbelieving Jews of Christ's time thought it meant? And the answer to that would be no. So then, why do the Orthodox Christian commentators have to make the Logos Jesus Christ? Because of John 1.3. All things were made through it, and without it was not anything made that has been made. And so that if if all things were made through it, who do the Trinitarians say made the whole world? Out of Hebrews, Jesus Christ. They said Jesus Christ did that. So the Logos has to be Jesus Christ. They're forced into that by their theology. See? But that all we're doing here is we're taking Logos and we're personifying it. And this this becomes very important then. Because when it says that the the Logos all of a sudden is, is participating or helping God with the creation. See, that to us is like, really? That's pretty strange. <laughs> how, does, how does that work? Because in, a, in America, we don't think that way. And this is one of the very challenging things when you're reading ancient documents. How, how did the people think? And I'll give you a great example of that. When we were translating Proverbs... Um, we learned that the uh, the word heart in Hebrew was used, it had a number of meanings, but one of them was the way you thought, your thinking. You're like, really? Why was that? It's because the ancients didn't know what the brain did. You know, they killed deer, and they killed animals, and they slaughtered cows and stuff, and they figured out, okay, the liver's always full of blood. It does something with the blood. And, you know, we figured out what the stomach does and the intestines. And we got the heart. You know, the heart is beating and pumping. We got that. And then they run into this big gray thing up, and I'm like, what does that do? They, they didn't have a clue what the brain did. And so the heart was assigned to thinking. So now you're reading Proverbs, and it says, A man who commits adultery with a woman lacks heart in the Hebrew text. And you go, well wait a minute, they're committed? They know what they want? <laughs> they're going after it? What do you mean they lack heart? And then you look at some of the translations, they lack good sense. If you commit <laughs> adultery with a woman, you're lacking, you're really lacking good sense. And, and is, that a, is that an acceptable translation of heart? Absolutely, because that's what they thought the heart did. They thought the heart thought. <laughs> They also assigned other meanings to the heart. So here's a situation where if we take the Hebrew word heart and we bring it directly into English, it actually produces a mistranslation. That we have to bring the meaning in the mind of the Hebrew person into English. Does that make sense? And then we have a good translation. This is some of the stuff that makes translating so crazily maddening. And so here, when, you know... We have a hard time thinking of how the logos could help God, but the Jews didn't have any problem with that at all. And that was personification thinking. And then I'm going to read out of Bernard International Critical Commentary. He says, when we turn from Palestine to Alexandria, and that's again Egypt, from Hebrew sapiential wisdom literature, I like. I like to see if if you're a scholar, you have to build this little cadre, little little cache of cache or whatever of. of vocabulary words that other people don't know. What, you don't know what sapiential literature is? You know, what, are you not educated? <laughs> so just for you not, know, sapiential literature is the wisdom literature of the Bible. That would be Proverbs, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, you know, and they, they talk like this and then then the average person can't get in on their meetings and understand what they're saying. But anyway, the Hebrew sapiential literature to that which was written in Greek we find this creative wisdom identified with the divine Lagos. Hebrewism and Hellenism coming into contact. So what do we see? We see that the Greeks and the Hebrews both used Lagos in a way of personification in, the, in their wisdom literature. And that becomes very important because that means that when John uses John 1.1 and talks about the Lagos that the Greeks And the Jews all understand what he's talking about, which is really nice. And the figure personification occurs when something that is not a person is given personal characteristics. And there's so much of this. If you have E.W. Bullinger's figures of speech used in the Bible, he's got pages on personification. Psalm 35.10, bones are talking. 68.31, Ethiopia is a woman and her hands are outstretched to God. Uh, Isaiah 3:26, the gates of Zion will lament and mourn, and it, it goes on and on and on. The Old Testament was very, very uh, filled. They, that was very common of them to make things and ideas into people. So now we go to Proverbs chapter 8. Now, Proverbs chapter 8 is a conundrum for Trinitarians because they want to make wisdom into Christ. And that would really help because of the connection between wisdom and Lagos, except what Proverbs 8 says about wisdom doesn't fit exactly an eternal Christ. So we read Proverbs 8 um, out of the REV, our translation, Yahweh created me at the beginning of his journey, prior to his works from back then, 23, from antiquity I was woven together. Oh, I, I need to point out in 22, see how wisdom was created? It wasn't eternal. It was created. That becomes important. From antiquity, I was woven together from the start, from the earlier times of the earth. Um, I was born when there were no deep oceans, when there were no springs abounding with waters. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed the horizon above the face of the deep, when he fixed the clouds above, when he strengthened the springs of the deep, when he set forth for the sea its limit so that the waters would not disobey his mouth. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him growing up. I was his great delight daily, playing in his presence at every moment, playing in the world, his earth, and full of delight with humankind. And so this is wisdom, and it's portrayed as a person who had a creation who then helped God. Now, you and I would never talk this way. We would simply say, hey, God is wise and he did things in a wise way, according to a plan. And that's the way we would talk. But the Jews wouldn't talk that way. They'd say, God created wisdom, and then wisdom was his helper. And that's the way they would talk, and that was very common to them. So John remembered, you know, when John got called by Jesus Christ, what was his profession? <clears throat> yeah, he was a fisherman. You know, he was a Jewish fisherman, and he's gonna talk and think like a Jew. And so to him to have the logos with God, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. That's precisely what what Proverbs 8 says. That, That wisdom, which has been equated with the logos, is with God. That's precisely the way they would talk. See, we read it and go, why would he say that? This is sure weird language. It is to us. We don't live in that world. But that's simply the way they talked. It was the way they thought. So here we have uh, the Aramaic from the time of Christ and the Targums, some of the later Targums, are well known for describing wisdom and the action of God as his word. And, you know, to to do this, really, you've got to (laughs) dig out the Aramaic Targums, which I can't do, so I stole this stuff from Dr. John Lightfoot, as you can see. (laughs) So here we go, Genesis 39.2, in the Aramaic Targum, and the word of the Lord was Joseph's helper. They say... How can the word of the Lord be the helper? Wouldn't the Lord be the helper? You and I would say the the Lord was the helper. We would say Yahweh was the helper and he spoke and helped. They say the word of the Lord was the helper. The way they talked, the way they thought. And Moses brought the people to meet the word of the Lord. We would say Moses brought the people to meet God or Yahweh. But he'd say, no, because the, the Word is, is integrally, integrally involved with God. And, and so he's with God, absolutely. And the Word of the Lord accepted the face of Job. And the Word of the Lord shall laugh them to scorn. And, and so forth. And you can see other examples besides these in Lightfoot's work. But the point is that when the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, that's strange to us. But that's absolutely the way they would talk. We would say in the beginning was a plan and that and God had that plan. That's the way we would say it. But they don't say it that way. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And we'll see that some more. Let's look at some other examples. Um, the Oh, and by the way, and this I wanted to bring up too. The word logos, as we see it in John 1, 1, and then through the prologue, that's the only time in the Gospel of John that the word logos is used that way of God's plan and purpose and reason. Now, why is that? Why would God cease using logos that way after his prologue? Because from God's perspective, he doesn't want you and me focusing on his plan. What's he want us focusing on? Jesus Christ. And what happens in John 1, 14? The plan becomes flesh, and it lives in a tent among us, and we gaze at him in amazement, in astonishment, wanting to emulate him. You see what I mean? So it makes perfect sense that after the word becomes flesh and Jesus Christ is really there in the flesh, that after that then the plan would fade into the background and what comes into the foreground? Jesus Christ, amen, absolutely. Very, very powerful stuff. Um, now, when we're talking about what the Bible does say, what it helps, and, and this is again where I, this is, this is where really I rely on world-class scholars because I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar. I I wish I was, I think in some ways it would help me, but then in other ways I think, no, because my experience of Greek scholars is if, uh, like, how can they make so many mistakes? (laughs) It's because they think they already know it, and and at least I know. I don't know it yet, so I dig hard. (laughs) I I don't know. That's my only explanation. But then you've got to ask yourself, okay, what, what could have God said? What if, if he wanted to communicate something different than he was communicating? What could he have said? And one of the things he could have said was, "In the beginning was the Muthas, and the Muthas was God, but uh, or was with God." And what did Muthas mean in the Greek? Well, Muthas it comes down to us as the English word. Guess what? Myth. Sure, the Muthas. Like, like the Logos was reason or plan or design, especially in action. And the Muthas was this body of beliefs that, were, uh, that were, in, you know, they were inculcated into society. They didn't make a lot of sense. All the teachings about the Greek gods that came down from Homer and from Hesiod and all that stuff about Jude, uh, well Zeus, actually. Zeus and Demeter and Mars and, and all the different gods and the, and the contradictions between Homer and Hesiod and some of the creation stories and the contradictory behavior of, of the gods and how they were just dangerous to be around, frankly. The gods were really um, not very nice. Frankly, so you have this body of belief that's mystical, it's beyond rational comprehension, it's internally contradictory. And if God wanted to tell us as Christians, okay, guys, look, here's what's the deal Um, I'm going to tell you the truth about what's going on in eternity, and it's irrational, it doesn't make any sense, it's a giant mystery, nobody can understand it, Um, then why use Lagos, which is talking about reason? Use Muthos and say, in the beginning was the Muthos. I'm giving it to you. You're not going to understand it. Don't try. It seems internally contradictory. It's a mystery. And we would go, we got it. Thank you for telling us. And then we have a choice. We believe it or we don't. We'd have a choice. But he didn't use Muthos, and that's important. Because by using logos, reason, plan, design, he's saying, you can figure this out. And then what's he saying, Isaiah? Come, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Let's talk about this. You say, God, you know, I'm not understanding this. You know, how come you say that the logos is with you if it was your plan? Oh, that's just the way we talked. Oh, okay, thank you. (laughs) You That's just just as simple as it is. It It really is. And I love, this is um, Roger Olson in, in Against Calvinism. I'm going to do two quotes here from guys that they were dealing with Calvinism and the Calvinistic doctrine that God's in control and everything you've done is predestinated and before you were ever born, God picked you to either go to heaven or go to hell. And it wasn't, there's nothing you can do to avoid that. And, and that's just as simple as it is. And so people write about that. Evangelical scholars write about that. But what they write about that also applies to Trinitarian doctrine. And so um, this is Roger Olson. He says, we must point out here the difference between mystery and contradiction. The former is something that cannot be fully explained or comprehended by the human mind, whereas the latter is just nonsense, two concepts that cancel each other out and together make an absurdity. And then Dane says verbalism is a theoretical game in which words really carry no ascertainable sense and phrases no ascertainable meaning. Like the Son is eternally begotten. Okay, now begotten means born. How are you born forever? It's just you know they, they, we develop a theology and then we describe that theology with words that don't make any sense. And it's rather much like the story about the emperor's new, new clothes. We need to call people out and say, hey, look, that doesn't make any sense. And it's not biblical. So uh, that's just something we've got to be uh, better at. Um, and the word was God or was with God. And we've talked about that. Again, this was common thinking. Proverbs 2.1, my son, if you receive my words and store up my commandments with you. Holman Christian Standard Bible would translate that, my son, if you will receive my words and store my commands inside you. That's the way we would speak today. They would say, have them with you. Proverbs eleven two: 2, overconfidence comes, then dishonor comes. But wisdom is with the modest. How would you and I say it? But the modest are wise. We just say the modest are wise. They would say, wisdom is with the modest. Why is in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God the way they talked. There's nothing strange about it, nothing unusual about it. It was just simply the way they talked, and it's all through your whole Bible, especially in the wisdom literature. Absolutely, and you can, the overconfidence causes strife. Wisdom is with those who accept advice. Job 23, for he performs what is appointed for me. Many such things are with him. Holman Christian Standard Bible, he will accomplish what is decreed for me, and he has many plans like this. So when we translate it in English in a free translation, then it, it just comes out like you and I would normally speak. But they would say with. Absolutely. Gnosticism. Why would it be so important to say the word was with God? Because at the time John was writing there were Christian believers that were turning to Gnosticism. What did Gnosticism say? It said, because, and this is an important point, see God has a purpose for everything he says so why did he even say the word was with God and to make a long story short we don't have to go through all the Gnostic beliefs but to make a long story short the Gnostics taught that the Old Testament God was named Elohim and he was an emanation from the monad and he was an evil nasty God and the monad's like oh boy I made a mistake I better you know get things corrected so the monad then there's another emanation and he makes this other God named Christ and Christ came to, to fix everything that Elohim messed up. And so they're at war with each other. <laughs> and that's your Gnostic belief. And and here's here's Christianity saying, wait a minute, that's not the way it works. God created Christ to fix everything. You know? So it's important to make a statement that the word was with God because there were Christian believers that were turning to Gnosticism and saying that the, the Logos was against God, that Christ was against Elohim. So it was an important statement to make in the culture of the time, absolutely. Now I want to take a look at the last phrase, which is, it's actually really simple. Uh, It's just been translated so poorly for so long that, that we have avoided it, and frankly, the the Trinitarians, I was so glad to read Wallace's book because Wallace is a Trinitarian and yet he will admit in his book, Greek grammar beyond the basics that translating it the way we've got there that what God was the word was is the better grammatical choice and the New English Bible does exactly that. So what do you have John 1.1? In our K, Hain Hologos in the beginning was the word Kai Hologos, Hain, pros. watch this, Tone Theon, the god. Now that seems strange, but what we need to know is that in Greek, most of the time, not all the time, but in Greek, most of the time, a proper name had the definite article before it. I would be the John. Yes. (laughs) But, you know, that that type of thing. But... (laughs) But so when it just says, it, and of course, everybody knows that's just the way they did names. So it gets translated God. <laughs> In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. But then it says, kai theos, oops, what happened to the definite article? Where's the the? It's missing. What does that mean? And theos, what, and, and godlike was the word. So... This quote was so beautiful by, Wisdom Bar- by William Barclay that I, I just simply flat out couldn't say it any better. And I certainly don't have his, his credentials. So I just want to read this quote because this thing nails it. Um, he says, in a case like this, talking about the last phrase of John 1.1, we cannot do other than go to the Greek, which is theos and hologos. Hol is the definite article, the and it can be seen that there's a definite article with logos, but not with theos. Logos, not with theos. When in Greek two nouns are joined by the verb to be, and when both have the definite article, then one is fully intended to be identified with the other. But when one of them is without the article, it becomes more an adjective than a noun, and describes rather the class or sphere to which the other belongs. An illustration for English will make this clear if I say, the preacher is the man, I use the definite article before both preacher and man, and I thereby identify the preacher with some quite definite individual man whom I have in mind. But if I say the preacher is man, I have omitted the definite article before man, and what I mean is that the preacher must be class- classified as a man. He is in the sphere of manhood. He is a human being. John has no article before theos, God. The Lagos, therefore, is not identified as God or with God. Let me read that again. (laughs) Is not identified as God or with God. The word theos has become adjectival and describes the sphere to which the Lagos belongs. We would therefore have to say that this means that the Lagos belongs to the same sphere as God without being identified with God. The Logos has the same kind of life and being as God. I wouldn't quite agree with that statement because he is a Trinitarian. Um, here he says, the NEB, the New English Bible, finds the perfect translation. What God was, the word was, which I stole for the REB. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it can't be perfection. But that's, that's absolutely beautiful. When I, when I think of, here's God's plan. And it, it makes sense. You know, here's God and he's, he's righteous and he's love and he's good and he's all these great things. And he makes a plan that isn't, well, my plan's evil, but whatever. <laughs> no, the plan is going to have the attributes of God. That makes perfect sense. In the beginning was the plan. The plan was with God because that's the way they talked. And the plan was like God. What, what God was, the plan was. It was good. It was righteous. It was pure. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. Fabulous. Absolutely. Here's Daniel Wallace. He's a Trinitarian, scholar of Greek grammar. You see his book down at the bottom, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. He examined the grammatical possibilities of the last theos in John 1.1. As indefinite a God, definite the God, or three qualitative that the Logos had the qualities of God. Wallace concludes, quote, The most likely candidate for theos is qualitative. Possible translation are as follows. What God was, the word was. So what do we see in the prologue of John? <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you what. We, are, we see our heavenly father in action. He so wanted a world we could live in. He, in six days he formed the heavens and the earth and he said, Behold, it's very good. And he planted a garden of delight and he said, I want my people to live there because I love them and I care about them and I want to take care of them. And then there was The fall. And God had to put up with four thousand years of nonsense, trying to prepare to make the world a paradise again to make people perfect again we 're not where i won 't need my glasses i won 't need my fillings you know that you know where i 'll have a perfect body you know and so and so then God starts out and he says in the beginning there was I had this plan, and that that plan was integrally tied into me it was with me and the and and the um, And I did everything according to the plan, John 1, 3. And then that plan became flesh, and it became flesh in Jesus Christ. And then it was Jesus Christ's turn. And then he, as the perfect man, walked that out for us so that you and I had had a Savior to believe in and an example to follow. Guys, thank you so much for your time and attention. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, if you found that interesting, check out more resources on John one. I have a link in the notes for today on christianmonotheism.com, a number of resources over there. Also, you might be interested in listening to my interview with Shane Haidt called The Word of Faith versus Trusting God, where he talks about how the Bible uses and defines the word faith. That's it for this time. If you if you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast. If you're listening to this on your computer, why not open your podcast app on your phone or your tablet and search for Restitutio, which is just the English word restitution with no N. And you will be able to find this podcast and subscribe to it and check out other episodes as well as get automatic downloads of future episodes each Thursday when this podcast comes out. Thanks so much for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.